We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. The U.S. Constitution obligates our government to preserve and protect the rights that our founders recognize come from God, our creator, not our government. I believe that scripture in the Bible is very clear that God is the one that raised up each of you and God has allowed us to be brought here to this specific moment in time. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Well, good morning, and it is Wednesday morning, the day before Thanksgiving, and I hope that all of you are able to celebrate Thanksgiving this year with true gratitude for the goodness of the Lord and His faithfulness and the providence and sovereignty of the Lord. We uh, look to the Bible for all of the promises that we know uh, will be true from the Lord because He is always faithful to His promises and to His character. And that is the true hope that we have as Christians, that no matter what else happens through the year, we can always daily, not just at Thanksgiving. It shouldn't just be a once in November uh, type of situation, but all through the year, we can uh, truly give thanks without ceasing, as the Bible calls us to. Uh, So we're going to get to a couple of top headlines this morning. And um, first, the Supreme Court has rejected Derek Chauvin's appeal. You remember him as the police officer out of Minneapolis that was found guilty in the contentious and very highly publicized case concerning the death of George Floyd, or um, as our good friend James Lindsay says, um, the BLM murder to the cause. And, you know, it's looking more and more through everything that has come out through the, uh, the trial transcript and um, the jury selection and some of the things that were not available to the defense in terms of um, the, the jury selection and some of the jurors' biases, that this does appear like a railroaded trial. And interestingly, now on appeal, the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday declined to hear that appeal. Uh, the court did not specify why it would not take up the case. And from a legal perspective, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, so the first is that the Supreme Court, uh, just generally, one of the criticisms that conservatives rightly have had about the court and about the tendency of the Republican nominees to be more prosecution oriented than defense oriented. And what we mean by that is that uh, Katanji Brown Jackson, who is, of course, Biden's uh, appointment to the Supreme Court is the first justice who has previously been a public defender. And so most of the Republicans that are appointed do not have a defense background, but more of a prosecution background. And that just tends to be a split between Republican or conservative oriented lawyers versus liberal or leftist oriented lawyers that a lot of conservatives tend to go the prosecution track and a lot of the bleeding heart liberals will go the defense track. That's not true. I know that that's a very generalized statement. It's not true for everyone, I should say, um, that it's an 
it's a generalized statement, but it tends to be categorically just how that goes. And I mean, that was true for me initially in the beginning. Um, I thought that my calling uh, for the Lord in law was to be a career prosecutor. And I was a prosecutor uh, in Colorado. And then um, based on the politics, interestingly, um, that was in Weld County, um, ended up uh, not being a prosecutor and um, and turned to the defense side. And that gave me specifically um, in just the cases that I was involved in um, to see a different viewpoint from this kind of orientation toward the prosecution is always on the side of the truth and nobody is over prosecuted and you're the white knight, you know, the white hat and the prosecution is implementing justice in society. And this is, you know, the great, um, the, the great use of the justice system only to put bad guys away in prison. Right. I mean, and that's how it should be. If we are a legitimate, morally upright society, we should only be prosecuting, Uh, people that the prosecution can prove beyond a reasonable doubt, which is our criminal standard in law, um, have done what they are accused of. But often in our now, in what has become the weaponized uh, criminal justice system, a lot of prosecutors will overcharge and use plea bargains and plea agreements to plead down to what defendants should have actually be charged with in the first place. And that really frustrated me as a defense attorney to go to the prosecutor and say, listen, you're charging what you think you can get by with in terms of a preliminary hearing, which is uh, the probable cause hearing to say, is there sufficient probable cause for the prosecutor to actually proceed on their case as charged? And prosecutors would would do that. And, and, And I would say, why aren't you charging what they should have been charged with. And then we can actually plead it down from there because that would be an actual plea bargain. Why would my client plead straight up to something that he should have been charged with initially? I mean, go to trial. And then even if they're found guilty, then it's no different than the plea agreement. And then we can argue sentencing to the judge. Um, but a lot, So a lot of prosecutors and the way that the system has been manipulated in America is not really with the interests of justice in mind. And in Colorado and most states um, where I'm still licensed, I'm a licensed attorney out of Colorado. I live in Florida now. Um, Florida doesn't allow you to wave into the bar. You actually have to take the whole bar exam. Haven't done that yet. Not sure if I'm going to do that anytime soon. Um, But so I'm still licensed out of Colorado. But um, just speaking for Colorado, but most states have a rule of professional responsibility that is specifically for prosecutors. It's what um, is known in the practice as the higher calling of a prosecutor, that you pursue the interests of justice. Justice is your client. So in other words, your prosecution should not be based on political considerations, should not be based on your like or dislike of a particular defendant. Um, It certainly should not be um, targeting a man and looking for the crime. Um, it should not be any of these other considerations. And sometimes the interest of justice requires that you don't prosecute someone. You see that the evidence, even after initially what you think happened, then there's eyewitness testimony, there may be forensic uh, type of evidence, there may be you know all kinds of things that come out as the investigation is continuing that you as a prosecutor would say, I can't ethically continue this prosecution. Um, that happened to me um, a, a number of times as a prosecutor when the when what was initially charged, then looking at the evidence, talking to the investigators, talking to the defense lawyers even, um, and other witnesses, then 
then I would say, okay, this was either overcharged or it deserves to be dismissed outright. And that actually is the interest of justice. And um, when I was, I was homeschooled as a lot of, uh, of our regular audience knows. And so I discovered my passion for law and the philosophy of law, the interest of justice and all that at a very young age. And I volunteered at um, the Boulder County District Attorney's Office for several prosecutors that had this understanding of the interest of justice. And I watched them even sometimes in the midst of trial, a witness would recant once they're under oath or, you know, something else came out and, the, you know, the defense um, came with this other witness that they, you know, whatever happened. And I would see these prosecutors even halfway through their own case say, judge, I no longer can meet that standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. And I'm withdrawing uh, the charges that I'm asking for the court to dismiss that. And that is truly pursuing the interests of justice. Um, and so when we look at a case like Derek Chauvin, um, just my personal opinion, looking at what happened in jury selection, what happened in the overly politicized case, I think this guy was railroaded completely. And he deserved at minimum a new trial based on the jury selection, based on um, how the case progressed, and um, and and I think the the bases, the legal bases, on which his defense attorneys appealed, were substantive and should have been taken up by the Court of Appeals and especially by the U.S. Supreme Court. So circling back, the Saki circle back, to what I said initially about the tendency of conservatives, and we have a conservative majority on the U.S. Supreme Court. That's a good thing um, in most instances. But where sometimes this can be a, um, a negative or a disadvantage is that a lot of the more conservative judges tend to give the benefit of the doubt to prosecutors so much that they aren't willing as much to protect the rights of the accused and the defendants and even the convicted. And so it was disappointing to me that the court did not take up this case. And I think in part, it may be because the left-leaning judges, and, and of course I'm speculating because they didn't give a reason, but the left-leaning judges obviously want this conviction to stand because they're all pro-BLM and the leftists and all of that stuff. I mean, we know that from some of the public comments of the leftist judges. And then the right is saying, well, the prosecution did its job. The jury did its job. We don't want to touch this, right? And that's not how our system should work. It also has been very apparent that the court increasingly increasingly is very hesitant to take up very high profile politically charged cases because they don't want to appear political. But interestingly, when they don't take up a case so that they don't look political, they are being political by not doing it. And that's what happened in, in my personal opinion uh, with the Texas versus Pennsylvania case um, that was filed by the attorneys general in the aftermath of the 2020 election. And when they filed that case to the U.S. Supreme Court under an original jurisdiction theory and the court declined to hear that, it was so politically charged. And that's not a good reason, because I think that the attorneys general in that case had established an Article Three original jurisdiction case or controversy. And so the Supreme Court didn't have an option but to hear it. Now, in this case with Derek Chauvin, um, this is an appeal not as of right. And so the Supreme Court didn't have to take up the case. They weren't obligated in the same way that I believe they were in the Texas versus Pennsylvania case because it wasn't original jurisdiction. It was an appeal. Uh, but 
they should have taken it up in the interests of justice. The Supreme Court is known as the court of last resort. And if the conservative justices really wanted to shoot an arrow straight through the heart of a weaponized criminal justice system, this would have been the perfect appeal to hear and to look at what actually happened from a legal perspective. They're not fact finders at that point. It's just as a matter of law and constitutional protections. And they could have uh, given Derek Chauvin a new trial. And of course, would the left have kind of gone ballistic? Sure. But that's not their concern. That shouldn't be their concern. Was it their concern that this would have caused natural outrage and we'd have another, you know, summer or winter of, you know, riots uh, like we did in the summer of 2020? Well, okay, but that's not that's not their call. That's not they shouldn't be looking to how is the general public going to respond. This is why the justices have lifetime tenure so that they don't have to worry about politics and policy and their approval ratings and all of that kind of thing. So I think that this is a travesty of justice all around. Um, And there is a new documentary that is uh, titled The Fall of Minneapolis. And um, it's by a woman named Liz Collin. And she was actually on Fox News on Monday night with Jesse Waters. And this is um, just her introduction of why The Fall of Minneapolis and this documentary about the Derek Chauvin trial is so important. Uh, This is cut one. So uh, how badly were the American people lied to? Gosh, it's hard to condense this, Jesse, in a a short segment, to be honest. And that was really why we wanted to put out this documentary, to to give people a look um, at the lies really from from the start. And we're we're still all paying the the consequences uh, of them. This is the very first time the police body camera footage was withheld from the public by Minneapolis police. That was for a reason. So we start the film right there with here's what you 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 were not allowed to see. That was only leaked about two and a half months months later. you have George Floyd complaining that he he can't breathe uh, before Derek Chauvin even arrives on scene. You have a black officer who arrested George Floyd that day and Alex King, and we speak to him quite a bit in the film. Remember, this is supposed to be the most racist police interaction in, in American history, uh, but nobody talks about the black officer. You also have on film uh, the uh, officers who are calling for an ambulance 36 seconds after George Floyd himself asked to be laid on the ground uh, that day. And people should, should be upset. They should they should wonder why was this kept from them uh, for so long? I myself was working in mainstream media at at the time, and I knew there was a lot more to this story and was really disgusted about what the press knew, what they were privy to. And they were refusing uh, to pass along to properly inform the public about what went on. That was Liz Collin, who is uh, the producer of this new documentary, The Fall of Minneapolis, and the truth behind uh, the George Floyd incident and Derek Chauvin and the trial. And pointing out, I mean, that that doesn't that upset the Supreme Court justices to hear what was withheld not only from the public, but um, also from the trial and, and also the issues with the jurors that withheld their bias in jury selection. And that only came out later after the fact. What about fairness in our system? I mean, our, our Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to our U.S. Constitution, more amendments and more protections are in our Bill of Rights in the context of criminal defense because our founders understood how easily and how blatantly the state could weaponize the criminal justice system against defendants 
who it's very costly, it's time consuming, where the state has virtually unlimited resources. And so I'm very disappointed in the Supreme Court for not taking this up and not even telling the public why they didn't. If there was a legal reason that they thought that they couldn't, I would love to know that. I would love to know uh, why they didn't. And so you can find this documentary. It's called The Fall of Minneapolis at thefallofminneapolis.com. If you can spell Minneapolis, you'll get there. If you can't, you might get to some other website. So make sure you can spell Minneapolis correctly. But it's thefallofminneapolis.com. And this is the last uh, clip I also want to play because in this documentary, this is the first time that Derek Chauvin himself talks to Liz Collin uh, in this documentary about the technique that he used that he says he learned from the Minneapolis Police Department and the trial and why it was so unfair. So this is cut four. This call is from a federal prison. During the trial, several witnesses, including Chief Arredondo and Inspector Blackwell, testified that they didn't recognize the technique you and the other officers were using as if it was not a part of Minneapolis police training, but was MRT, the maximal restraint technique, part of training and policy? Absolutely. In fact, I'm looking at it right now. 5-316, maximal restraint technique, right in their written policy manual. The EMS and Minneapolis fire response was not normal. Normally, both those resources are sent. They arrive in short time, especially in, on a code three situation. In this case, Minneapolis fire took 20 minutes plus to arrive and their station's eight blocks away. At the end of the day, the whole trial, including sentencing, was a sham. Wow. And isn't that just a travesty of justice? And there are other of uh, the Minneapolis Police Department um, officers who also say, and they actually accuse some of their leadership of perjuring themselves during trial, talking about this uh, maximal restraint technique and saying, you know, no, this was something that we were taught and this was um, a sham. And so uh, we are almost out of time for this segment, but go to thefallofminneapolis.com. And this is where uh, there have to be legislative solutions to to all of this and with some of the loopholes that uh, prosecutors and leftist-oriented, um, weaponized prosecutors are implementing um, when they're not pursuing the interests of justice. And people like Derek Chauvin and you know many others that we could cite across the country are then um, pushed toward conclusions that aren't truly just. And that is a travesty. We need to have legislative solutions, and we need to ensure that our justice system actually is the best in the world. Because right now, I genuinely don't think it is. And I think it is a far cry from what I was taught and trained as a young lawyer. And even before I was a lawyer at the Boulder DA's office when I was just volunteering, that prosecutors only client is justice and the interest of justice. Now, it seems like a lot of the left, it's just social justice and politics, and that's all they're after. But we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. If you're like most of us, you're paying way too much for healthcare. That's why I want to tell you about a ministry that has been meeting the healthcare needs of hundreds of thousands of Christians, and that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, chministries.org. Christian Healthcare Ministries is cost sharing made easy. For over 40 years, this unique model has allowed believers to choose their own doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods, since they are not insurance, but a faith-based alternative to insurance. 
Members not only get advantages from the affordability, flexibility, and reliability of CHM, but they also receive access to 24-7 telehealth services at no additional cost. It's no surprise that doctors across the country appreciate working with CHM, and so will you. It all starts with a visit to chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR. Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest serving health share ministry serving all 50 states. Share the good news with a friend too. chministries.com slash AFR. Make the switch today with any time enrollment. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning. And because this is the day before Thanksgiving, I thought it would be great to play for you one of uh, the best interviews that I've had on my Salem Media podcast. And you can always find that at thejennaellisshow.com. It's with our good friend Owen Strand, and he is now a podcast host himself on Salem Media. That podcast is called Grace and Truth, and you can follow him at O Stran, and his last name is S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N. He also has a great new book out called The War on Men, and we talk about this, but also uh, in this whole interview, um, it's it's just a really good reminder why we have to have truth in worldview and why we have to be biblically based in every policy decision that we advocate for as conservatives. So here's the interview with Owen Strand. So joining me now is my good friend Owen Strand, and he has a brand new book called The War on Men and also breaking news, new title for him. Uh, Salem podcaster. So he's actually a colleague now of mine on the Salem Podcast Network. So Owen, congratulations. This has been so long in the works and I'm so excited. This is finally coming to fruition. So do you have a name for the podcast and kind of an emphasis of what you're going to be talking about? Thank you, Jenna. It's such an honor to share this word on your podcast. You've been a huge help. It's called Grace and Truth. I think the maybe the formal title is Grace and Truth with Owen Strand. That's of course drafting off of John 117, where it says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. I am not Jesus, just to clarify publicly, but I do pray that my engagement of culture, which is really the focus, uh, culture, politics, theology, the arts, and so on, can point people to the grace and truth that is found in Christ. And I am so excited for this podcast because we need more voices like yours that are specifically addressing cultural issues and theological concepts from a biblical worldview perspective. I mean, there is so much that is going on in all kinds of different avenues that I think all of our hosts on the network cover um, so well. And there's so many different voices that specialize in different things. And that's why we have such a great lineup. Um, But I think that this one in particular is going to be a huge encouragement to our Salem listeners, because you just bring a, um, not only a seminary background, but a real wealth um, of knowledge as a pastor and as someone who can truly exposit the word of God and apply it um, to our daily lives. Because I think there is such a separation sometimes of literally church and state in terms of church and life. Um, what goes on in church, we don't necessarily carry out into the daily living um, of our jobs, of our families, of politics, of um, civic engagement, all of these things. And so living with grace and truth in all aspects of our lives is really what uh, the Lord calls us to do. First, to have salvation and trust in the Lord through our faith in Jesus Christ and him alone, um, but also then to 
then work out our salvation and to understand how to be daily more perfected into the image of Christ. And through that, really live out the Christian life. And it's always interesting to me, Owen, how so many people think that all the Bible talks about is how to become saved and start our relationship with the Lord. But that's just part of it. That's the most important part. But the rest of it is how to live after that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great way to frame it. We talk a lot in the church about saving grace and saving grace, as you said, is, is everything. It's the fountainhead of true belief of entering eternal life. But if you don't have the second part of God's grace for the Christian life, sustaining grace, daily grace, persevering grace, you are very much lacking, certainly in your outlook and your perspective and your worldview. And that is absolutely essential to know that the same God who saves us in a moment of God-given faith, what we call regeneration unto faith, repentance in the name of Jesus, trust in Jesus, all his blood and his righteousness being applied to us, that's just the start. Uh, then begins the whole lifelong journey dimension of Christianity, where you are now born again, you are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, but now you need God's daily mercies. You need God's daily forgiveness. You need his help. You need his strengthening. Uh, you need to stand up and be counted as a witness uh, wherever you are in your life. And uh, and to do that, you don't need to you know arm up in your own strength. You need to go to the Lord and know that uh, Philippians 4.13, we can do all things through him who strengthens us. He strengthens us. His grace is not weakening grace then in terms of our spiritual vitality. His grace is strengthening grace. And we need that every second we live, Jenna. The good news is that it never runs dry. So well said and so hopeful and encouraging, especially in the midst of all that we're going through um, here in America and across the world. Um, you know, and this is nothing new in terms of human history. We uh, can look back to the Roman Empire and see the fall of great civilizations in the past when they have allowed evil to gain a foothold um, in civil government and institutions that God has ordained in the family unit and uh, twist those and pervert them and corrupt them uh, toward evil instead of Christians and the biblical worldview being the foundation for all that we do. And, and I always find it remarkable and, and a little bit funny, actually, when um, people on social media will always use Christianity as almost the excuse to discount anything that uh, we talk about politically. It's like, you know, if I make a joke about something and, oh, you're a Christian, how dare you have a sense of humor? Or, oh, well, you know, you're a Christian, so you shouldn't be speaking about politics. Well, you're a Christian. Shouldn't that be in church? Um, and, and if you say that in church, you're going to lose your tax exempt status. I mean, it's all kinds of ways to say that somehow Christians can't be part of civil government. Yeah, that's the fundamental claim. Sorry, I was having a moment of serenity there as you shared all these <laughs> enlightening and encouraging words that, yes, we hear pouring into our lives like sweetness and light from above. And it's exactly right, Jenna. The thing that uh, the world doesn't want and will make you pay coming in and going out for is being a Christian in public. And um, I would just commend you for a minute as my my dear sister and friend. Um, you have you have lived your Christian faith in public and doing so means that you get a target placed squarely on your back. And now the devil who already wants to destroy all of us, but especially wants to take down those who are faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ and his gospel in the public square. Now the devil's really gunning for you. And in response, what a lot of Christians have done in the modern era is they've said, oh, no, I'm drawing fire. So what I need to do 
is I need to, wheels turning, be less Christian in the public square. And what I need to present is kind of reason and, and maybe wisdom and social science and on and on it goes. But I shouldn't speak biblical truth and I should never share the biblical gospel. And, and that's what even friends and peers and colleagues who we have so much agreement with in public square terms, but that's that's the move they think they can make in terms of their own faith practice. But Jenna, that's not what we think biblically we are called to do. We think we're called to be like John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Messiah, who doesn't get killed, interestingly, for talking about Jesus as Messiah, though that was extremely controversial and put him in harm's way. No, he gets killed for telling the truth about sexual sin of a governmental leader. And so he's an example for us of how we frame our whole approach to the public square. We don't sand down the Bible. We don't take 20% Bible in the public square with us. We don't only quote Bible verses or something like this. We're free to make good cases and cite stats and use data and use wisdom and use great arguments. And we try to do all of that. But the fountainhead of all our engagement is Christ. It's, it's his word and his gospel. So well said. And um, you know, it's it's really true that so many people want to, so many Christians who maybe are very well intentioned, don't want to specifically rely on the authority of the word of God for their arguments because they're afraid that they'll just be discounted out of hand or that there are better, more rational arguments somewhere else in man's philosophy, rather than understanding that the only source of truth is the person of God who is truth himself and um and his word that he provided to us so that we can know how to live out our faith in fear and trembling and mm -hmm. in public as well. And this gets us um, directly into the topic of your book, um, The War on Men, because so many people right now are so hesitant to engage directly with the absolute lie perpetuated on the culture of the whole gender theory, queer theory um, myth. And they don't want to stand up and not engage in quote unquote pronoun hospitality or, well, what if I don't want to use somebody's you know preferred name or preferred gender or how do I address all of these things? And it's watering down our witness. And we aren't then as Christians making a bold stand saying, of course, not only according to specific revelation in the Bible, but also general revelation, just the natural world around us, the laws of nature and of nature's God, as our founders termed it, show us there's a measurable difference between male and female and men are very different from women. And so there is this war on men because there's a war on women as well. There's a war on gender identity because if we lose that intrinsic essential aspect of our nature, we're also watering down the true nature of human beings, which is that we're made in the image of God and have inherent dignity and worth. And so how can Christians stand up for the truth about uh, men and women and our differences in a culture that is so completely against any semblance of truth? Hmm. You said like 19 true things there, Jenna, that uh, we could pull out and talk through. Uh, that was a great summary. That's why I wrote the the book, The War on Men, because really, if I am to write a sequel, I'm going to just call it The War on Everything, because Satan has declared war on the world God has made. Satan hates the creator, and I'm using these terms intentionally. He hates the creation. He hates the creatures God has made. All of us as men and women are just creatures. Uh, we're, we're made in the image of God, so we're invested with tremendous dignity and worth. We are made literally to know God 
And yet because of sin, we have fallen away from God. We followed Satan's design and Satan's anti-revelation over God's truth. And that's exactly how we help ourselves understand where we are today in the West in 2023. We're not following what we call creation order. We're not following God's design. We're not saying it's good for men to be strong in God, and it's good for women to find their identity in Christ and, and embrace that identity. We're, we're not saying those things. We're saying today in our Western elitist circles, there's no such thing as manhood. There's no such thing as womanhood. And guess what that, uh, what, guess what effect that has practically? It means not so much that you and I are most affected by that as adults. It means that boys and girls are tragically brought into chaos and confusion and disarray, and they have no clue who they are. They don't know what their body is for. They don't know what it means to be a boy growing up into manhood. They don't know what it means to be a girl growing up into womanhood, whether they get married or they're single. They have no concept of what these things mean. And so they embrace androgyny and they're encouraged to embrace androgyny. They're encouraged to queer their sex. They're encouraged to embrace homosexuality. Anything that goes against God's design in biblical and, and common grace terms, Satan is very happy to help us embrace. And that is in a, in a nutshell where we are today in 2023. And what we have to do in response is promote God's truth and God's gospel and say, God's design is not only right, it is good. It's beautiful. And we're here to live it out. Yeah. And and I want to underscore one thing that you said, too, is that this is a rebellion against the created order. This is no different than original sin, which was rebelling against God's authority. And God has uh, delegated some limited authority, but he's also put in the laws of nature uh, this implicit a sovereignty and this authority that shows the the created order and the design that men are supposed to be the head and the leaders and women are supposed to be um, submissive and are supposed to be the the weaker uh, vessel. Not in the sense of you know women are not as valuable or that we aren't strong, but understanding that um, we are to be cherished and loved because femininity is so much more fragile than um, in in that sense. And not to say that women aren't strong, but we are not mm -hmm. supposed to be um, the shelter and the head that is the provider and the security that is the man. I mean, and, and every woman in our heart, we know that when you have a protector there, if you have a, a man that is with you walking alone at night, you feel safer. Why? Because he's a man and he's there with you. I mean, this is why we have security. And so all of these things that are just natural in God's order, um, we are rebelling against in, in everything. And, and I saw um, just yesterday, on social media, this picture um, in a in an article that was a maternity or paternity, you know, photo shoot that they called it a maternity photo shoot of two um, homosexual men and their surrogate one female mother with a uh, pregnant with their now child that they're purchasing through a surrogate um, was faded in the background as they stood holding hands and embracing. And that was their photo shoot. And I quote tweeted that. And I said, this is absolutely tragic for everyone involved here because it just shows how completely absurd and off the mark we are with marriage, family, masculinity, femininity, men, women. Um, so how do we just stand up and and try to impact a culture that is doing all of these ridiculously absurd, unnatural things out in the open, and they're demanding that we celebrate it. 
um, so many Christians are even tolerant now of this type of behavior and think that loving our neighbor means that we need to accept this. How can we even start to make inroads to change hearts and minds back for standing on the truth? Uh, yeah, great question. I mean, fundamentally, we've got to speak the truth and love, Ephesians 4, 15. We've got to recognize that those people look like our enemies. And, you know, in a, in a civilizational sense, we are on opposite sides, to be very sure. Uh, but what we want is their good. And in, in wanting their good and seeking to love our neighbor and fulfillment of the second greatest commandment, Matthew 22, what we need to do is we need to stand against, actually, that ideology. And we need need to say, though you think based on your feelings that this lifestyle is good and is going to be good for your child, it truly is not. And so this requires courage out of us. This requires courageous public witness on the part of the church in the form that you're trying to provide and I'm trying to provide in some some very small dimension. But we've got to have a ton of that. And we've got to have pastors who are bold and brave in Christ and the power of the Spirit to educate their congregations on these realities and help their congregations understand that they're not here fundamentally to be liked first and foremost. We we pray that others see our witness and see it as good. But what what we are here for first and foremost is public witness. That's what we're here for. And then secondly, we need to not only speak, but we need to live this out. What God wants of us is actually quite simple. He does want courageous witness by the power of his gospel, but he, he also wants us just to embody these truths and to live them out and to be a, whether married or single, a, a godly man or a godly woman uh, to, to speak to and embody the goodness of manhood and the goodness of womanhood. None of us is, is called to be some kind of trophy image of this. We can't be, but what we are called to be is a living witness of Jesus Christ. And then hopefully, even as we make the case and, and and try to live in a godly way in a fallen world, we can also reach across the lines and say, all right, you, are, you really are trapped in lies, um, but I know the one who will give you true belonging and, and true hope. And that's going to mean that, yes, you come to him as you are, but you can't stay there. You've got to change. You've got to repent of your sin and trust Jesus Christ. You've got to have faith in Christ. And when you exercise that, you you truly belong. You're not belonging right now to a true community. You might think you are, but this is all a lie. This is a counterfeit. This is a deception. And you've been pulled into it. And I'm here to speak reality. I'm here to speak truth to you. And I'm here to speak grace to you. And, and God will work as we do so. Yeah. And, and those, the people who are trapped in this type of um, sin and in any kind of lifestyle that is contrary to the truth, whether that is, you know, LGBT stuff or any other kind of sin. I mean, that's something that obviously our, our culture is focused on, but it's not the only means and method of, of not being a part of the created order as God intended, or in a way that is contrary to living Christianly and with the Christian life. And, you know, when, um, when we take on the identity of Christ and when uh, you were talking, Owen, about being a witness to the truth. And um, when the Bible talks about being ambassadors for Christ, this really, for me, um, there was a, a moment when I was representing President Trump. And so I'm an ambassador for him, for his campaign. I was speaking on his behalf. So every time that I was on you know, mainstream media, television, talking to a reporter, anything, it was very, very real to me that whatever I said was representing the highest office in the land. And I, and I took that incredibly seriously. And there was a moment 
when I, I was waiting for um, a media hit and it really just dawned on me. And I thought, if I am this concerned every single time that I make a public appearance, that I'm representing the highest office in the land, why aren't Christians daily so much more concerned that everything we do and everything we speak is a reflection of our savior? And we can do that in a way that is a good witness and a good faithful ambassador or in a way that's not so great. And we need to really focus on the fact that when we give our lives to Christ and we are transformed and changed and we are no longer living selfishly. I mean, these people in this photo shoot, I'm just looking at that saying they're just serving whatever their passions and their desires and ultimately their selfish purposes want instead of the fulfillment of living a life in Christ. And when we make that switch from being all about ourselves to being an ambassador and a witness for Christ, we need to take that very seriously every single moment of the day and ask ourselves, are we doing everything today to the best of our ability, ultimately for the glory of the Lord? And that's the great commission, really. Um, And so I'm so grateful that you wrote this book and that um, you're going to have this podcast to encourage people uh, daily to fulfill the great commission. So just in the last few minutes I have with you, Owen, um, what encouragement do you have then for people who maybe are listening to this and are like, I want to be bold and that sounds really great, but I can't stand the hate that I see that, you know, you and Jenna get all the time on social media and I can only imagine what it's like in person. I probably can't do that. <laughs> yeah. Great question there. I would just say, we've got to do what you were just talking about. We've got to find our identity in Christ. There's nothing really that fancy about it. Um, we're in a a culture that's talking a ton about human identity and what it means to be human. And we're all accustomed now to thinking that we kind of in some form create our identity or find our identity as if we're on sort of some sort of gold mine quest within our uh, deepest soul. And in reality, that's not the truth. In reality, what we need to do is simply go to the word of God and find out who we are as defined by God himself. And in the New Testament, the new covenant, what the word of God teaches us is that we are a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And as Paul says, Christ is our all. Christ is our all. So when Christ is your all, you no longer are jockeying for position. You may have real influence. You may have real power, so to speak, in a corporation or workplace or uh, college or university or entertainment center, whatever it may be. God puts Christians in wonderful positions of influence, and we're we're great with that. You yourself have experienced that. But we're, that's not the focus of our life. That's not what we're living for. That's not what we're gunning for. That's not how even we think of ourselves. Ultimately, we think of ourselves as nothing more than a servant of Jesus Christ. And then we connect that, I think we could say, in a slightly impish way, to the social media meme, you have one job. When you understand that your identity is Christ and and that's it, that's your identity. He's not like 51% of your identity. And then you bring in a whole lot of unchristian things along with that and presto change, merge it. No, Jesus is your identity. And that's a glorious thing that's grounded in the love of God and the forgiveness of God and the, and the grace of not, not a kind of legalistic gritting your teeth. No, this is a glorious identity. And now you have one job, wherever God calls you, It's to be his witness. And you don't have to worry about your life. You're not in control. You're not sovereign. God is in control. And God, great news, is going to get you all the way to glory. No one's getting left behind here. The the ship is not going to be missing any passengers who are supposed to go to the New Jerusalem at the end of time. God is going to get us all out. The, The search and rescue mission that Jesus is on is going to be successful. So we remember that knowing our identity in Christ. It's not just that he saved us 
to end where we began. It's that he's going to keep us all the way to the end. And that in is exactly why uh, my social media page now just simply says in my bio, a servant of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. because that is exactly the message that I want to convey, because it doesn't matter what I've done in my past. And I, you know, there was just a moment that um, that I sat there and thought, what do I want to be known for? It's not any of my jobs in the past or what platforms the Lord might want to give me in the future. It's all his and anything that I do. I only want to be a servant of Jesus Christ. And that is our true identity and what glorious hope we have for the future. And so we need to press on, uh, finish the race strong. And I would encourage everyone, get this book from Owen, The War on Men, so that you can be better equipped to engage our culture with truth and so that we can bring more passengers along on that ship and we make sure that everyone has an opportunity to hear the glorious truth about our Lord and Savior. So Owen, thanks so much. Where can people find you and the book? Uh, so kind. Great words there. Um, they can find the book on Amazon. That's probably still a good place to go to get it. Um, I also wrote a, another book, Christianity and Wokeness. You can find those two books on Amazon, War on Men, Christianity and Wokeness. And then my Twitter is at O-S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N. It's a Scottish last name. Don't at me on that, but at O-S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N. And thank you very much uh, for the great conversation. Thanks so much. And looking forward to the launch of your podcast. And uh, we'll be praying for that. And uh, really excited to have you in our great lineup of Salem Network uh, podcasters. So thanks so much, Owen, and looking forward to talking with you soon. All right. That was Owen Strand. And we, of course, recorded uh, right before his podcast launched. So that is available now on Salem. It's the Grace and Truth podcast. You can find that wherever podcasts are streaming. Grace and Truth with Owen Strand. And of course, his book is The War on Men. And you can follow him at O-Stran, S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N. I have to actually read that as I'm looking at it because I never remember how to spell his name. But we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Leisha had found herself in an unplanned pregnancy and wasn't sure what to do. She searched for pregnancy services and found a preborn network clinic where she was counseled, supported, and offered a free ultrasound. After seeing her baby and hearing the heartbeat, she cried. She was certain she would keep her baby forever. Leisha gave birth to a baby girl who is smart, beautiful, and full of life. Often, she visits that same clinic and receives free clothes, diapers, and more. Because of your generous support, Preborn writes 200 stories just like these every day. $28 can be the difference between the life and death of a child. When a mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection and doubles a baby's chance at life. Let's join together and help mothers in crisis choose life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby or visit preborn.com. That's preborn.com. All gifts are tax deductible and 100% of your donation goes towards saving babies. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning. And for those of you who are probably getting off work early to go and spend Thanksgiving with your families, your friends, or um, your friends who have become your family, or just people that uh, you love spending time with, or if you are spending Thanksgiving um, alone this year, know that you're not ever truly alone because we always have the Lord 
with us and we should always be using every day, but especially on Thanksgiving, to remember the goodness of the Lord. And there are verses in scripture that speak um, throughout scripture about giving thanks to the Lord. And here are just a few. Um, We started out this morning with Psalm 107. One, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 717, I will give thanks to the Lord due to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. First Thessalonians 518, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ for you. Philippians 4, 6, one of my favorites, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Colossians three fifteen, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Colossians four twelve continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Psalm 28, 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield in him. My heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts for I will give with my song. Thanks to him. And there are so many more verses, but I love that in uh, when the Bible commands us to pray and we have the privilege and opportunity of going um, into the presence of the Lord in prayer, uh, we are always reminded and admonished to come in prayer with thanksgiving and that we should be grateful to the Lord. And I know that so many um, of you this year, like me, have been through a lot of um, trying times, difficult circumstances, um, but this is why we can go to the Lord with thanksgiving and know that all things do work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, that doesn't mean that everything will go well or that perfect justice will be enacted in our lives um, through the course of this this fallen world. We will never see complete and perfect justice until the Lord himself Uh, reigns in the new heaven and new earth, and we're promised that in the book of Revelation. But we can still give thanks and know that even though um, there there are people who have literally in world history and church history been martyrs to the cause of Christ, and their lives have been cut short brutally, they still praised the Lord and went to their deaths early because they knew that their hope was not in the things of this earth, but in eternity. And I think that is such a wonderful perspective of having an eternal mind. Now we have to continue to advocate for the things of God, for a moral and upright society, be involved and engaged in our families and our churches. Um, But ultimately, I think we shouldn't get too frustrated when we see things not working out perfectly or when there um, are things like um, imperfect justice in our criminal justice system. Uh, We can still continue to praise the Lord, trust in him, and look to him as the author and finisher of our faith. And so speaking personally for everything that I have gone through this past year, I so appreciate all of you who continue to pray for me, encourage me, and uh, know that I've been trusting in the Lord every step of the way. I'll continue to do that. I've done that for my whole life, and I'm always learning more and more through everything that I go through to trust God more sooner because he is always good and all things do work together for good. Even if they're unpleasant at the time, they work for his good. So happy Thanksgiving and we'll be back tomorrow and Friday with the best of Jenna Ellis in the morning. 
I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com slash AFR and sponsor an ultrasound? Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest-serving health cost-sharing ministry, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. Make the switch today and start saving. Visit chministries.org/afr. That's chministries.org/afr.